I will read that out now. John 11, verses 17 to 37. This is God's word. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, please make your face to shine upon us through the preaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit that Christ would be magnified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In July 1555, uh, two men, John Bradford and John Leaf, were burned at the stake for holding the views that we hold dear today. They were uh, Protestant Christians, this was in English under the reign of Bloody Mary, where the Roman Catholic Church uh, was slaughtering a lot of uh, Christians for the beliefs that we hold dear today. Now, Bradford had been in prison for a few years before his execution, and uh, the day before his execution, he was told that he was going to be burned at the stake, and it's recorded that his response was, Thank God. I've looked forward to this day for a long time. The Lord make me worthy. Seems almost uh, delusional to hear that. Now, he was burned with John Leaf, who was only 20 years old. Bradford was the older. John Leaf, much younger. And as they were about to be burned, Bradford, the older, uh, said to the younger Leaf, be at peace, brother. We will have a happy supper with the Lord tonight. And then the flames consumed them and they died. Now, I want to know, what is it that gives this kind of hope in the face of death? 
other than someone being delusional, which I do not believe they were, what is it that gives this kind of hope in the face of death? What is it that allows men like this, or if you remember the story of Guido Debray from uh, about a year ago when we went over that, what is it that allows uh, many of these men to walk through great sorrow and anguish and to bring all of their grief to God without cursing him for the lot that they have been dealt? What makes them face death and even grieve in a way that glorifies God rather than curses him. See, walking through great affliction and grief and doing so with a strong, concrete hope in the Lord is one of the great battles of the Christian life. We are spared in one sense from it to a degree in this life because we live in quite an easy culture. It's easy still to be a Christian. It seems to be getting harder Now, regardless of how hard it gets, we must learn how to go through these great afflictions and grief in a way that does not curse God, but rather glorifies Him and does so with a strong, concrete hope in the Lord. And we see these themes today in our passage. So we're not going to get to Lazarus being raised from the dead. We'll save that for next week. Before we get to that, We need to look at these three particular themes in this passage, which deal with God glorifying grief and concrete hope. So there are three particular themes. The first is God glorifying grief. That is, how can we grieve in a way that glorifies God? And then secondly, how can we then take our grief to a savior who actually grieves? What a beautiful thing. That's the second aspect today. We see a weeping savior. We see Jesus weeping. And then thirdly, what undergirds this, this resurrection hope. We will grieve in this life, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve in a very different way. We grieve as those who have a concrete hope of the resurrection. Now to get the context just in verses 17 to 20, John makes this point of letting us know that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, there are various theories, which I won't get into as to why the specific number of four. uh, But all we really need to know is what is absolutely clear is that Lazarus is stone cold dead without any hope. No one there is believing that he's going to be raised from the dead. He's been dead four days, at least if they put him in the tomb on the day of his death. Maybe he'd been dead longer, but he is stone cold dead. And no one there is thinking that he is about to be raised from the dead. And then in verse 18, John records that Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem, which means that many of the Jews are coming to mourn with this family who are clearly a prominent family. Now, part of the point is this, that these are two ingredients that, again, set the scene for this beautiful picture of God's glory being shown because of the amount of people with them. It's quite close to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of people there. It's going to be another public sign. And then also because of the time Lazarus has been in the tomb, that is in a way that no one is expecting him to be raised from the dead. This is all of the backdrop that is necessary for Jesus to show the glory of God in doing what seems utterly impossible. Now, we'll see more of that next week. But before we get to that, we must look at these themes of grief and resurrection hope in our passage. So let's firstly look at God glorifying grief. Now, we're going to look at Martha and Mary's response. If we look at both of their responses, firstly, Martha, 
Remember, this is the first time they have seen Jesus in the flesh after they have appealed to him for him to come and heal their brother. So, of course, when they send that note to Jesus saying, the one whom you, Jesus, love is ill, of course, the implication is come and heal him. Help him. He's ill. Now, that request goes unanswered. They don't know why it has gone unanswered. They're not sure of exactly what has happened, but this is the first time they have seen Jesus since, and it probably feels like their request was in vain. Lazarus is dead. They've had at least four days to talk about it with all of their family, to grieve and weep. And in verse 21, we see Martha's first words to Jesus. She comes and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Martha clearly believes that Jesus has God-given healing power because she knows that if he was there, this would not have happened. He had all of the power necessary to prevent Lazarus's death. There is actually an element of great faith that we see in Martha here. See, although she, she must be full of sorrow, full of grief, she still fully recognizes Jesus's divine abilities and his relationship with God the Father. She makes this clear by saying, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's saying, I know that you have a particular relationship with God the Father that no one else in the history of this world has ever had. I know that even now, God will give you whatever you want. Now, if we come to Mary's response in verse 32, Mary's is similar, though perhaps not quite as restrained as Martha's. From verse 29, we read that Mary hears Jesus is here, so she quickly runs out to meet him. And the language is very much that it's almost like it's as she is falling to her feet, she is crying out, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She clings to his feet, very emotional, a weeping mess probably. So although Mary and Martha's responses differ slightly, Nevertheless, they are very similar. In fact, the wording is exactly the same in the thing that they say to Jesus, which is to say, Jesus, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Surely over the last several days of mourning and grief, they had probably discussed this among themselves. Imagine that, sitting around, Lazarus is dead. Jesus didn't respond to their call, and they were probably saying, if only Jesus was here. He would have, he would have stopped this from happening. How often in our own grief have we said things like this? We're, we're grieving and we think, if only this happened, if only this person was here, if only that person didn't do that thing. It's very easy to analyze things in our grief. Grief often brings out the raw emotions within us, which cause us to question why things have happened. Why? Why did this happen? Why was this person not here? It even causes us to question the goodness of God. I wonder if you've ever heard, or maybe you've said this, where you're going through devastating grief and it causes you or someone else to doubt the goodness of God. So people say things like, Lord, if you really cared, you would not have let this happen. If you really cared, this wouldn't have come to pass. Now, it's not immediately sinful for these raw emotions to bring forth questions of why. So notice Throughout the Psalms, particularly Psalm 43, in Psalm 43, verse 2, the psalmist says, Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 
So it's not immediately sinful to ask why, but there is an appropriate God-glorifying way to ask that question, and then there is an inappropriate, even blasphemous way to ask that question, which turns out into more of a demand, which is to say, why did you not do this for me, Lord? And you are presuming upon the Lord. Now, here's what I want to look at today. How do we glorify God in all of our grief? How do we honor him, expressing all of our raw emotions and do it in a way that is not self-preserving and not blasphemous, doing it in a way that honors God rather than dishonors. And I think we see this in Mary and Martha's response. And what I want to do is look at five aspects of Mary and Martha's grieving that glorifies God and then back that up with examples from the Psalms. So God glorifying grief in Martha and Mary. Firstly, we see that God glorifying grief recognizes God as God. It attributes God things to God. It doesn't diminish from him. God glorifying grief recognizes God as God. We see this in their response as they say, Lord, if you had have been here, our brother would not have died. Now they are not necessarily conveying anger or frustration. Rather, they're conveying the reality of the truth. If Jesus was here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus had complete ability to heal him. So they are not necessarily conveying anger or frustration, but rather they're confessing the reality that Jesus had the ability to heal their brother. They had heard of this before. So their grief, notice, has in no way diminished their view of who Jesus is. This does not question his ability to heal. This doesn't make them say, maybe Jesus isn't a divine healer. Maybe he was not able to do it. Rather than their grief, rather than their grief causing them to diminish who they think Jesus is, their grief actually fully attributes divine power to Jesus. It recognizes God as God. It attributes God things to God himself. It does not allow, their grief rather, does not allow them to strip Jesus of his God status. It recognizes God as God. It expresses the reality that Jesus had the complete ability to heal. So God-glorifying grief recognizes God as God. Secondly, notice their grief is directed toward Jesus as the sole source of comfort and meaning. See, when they say, Lord, if you had been here, they are recognizing Jesus as the only one who is able to provide healing and comfort and meaning In this circumstance, they're not looking to Jesus amongst other healers as if to say, oh, Jesus wasn't here. Well, who's that other guy who can heal? Phone him up. They're only looking to Jesus. Jesus was not one option amongst other magicians who could work a miracle. He was it. You had to be there, Jesus. It is Jesus alone who had to be there. So God glorifying grief is always directed toward Christ alone, toward God alone. Thirdly, their grief is not self-centered. Their grief is not self-centered. It's not as though their grief comes simply because God has not given them what they wanted. We don't see that in this passage. There is a difference between them saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then saying, 
Lord, if you were really good, you wouldn't have let my brother die. That is a self-centered way and presuming upon the Lord. We don't bring our grief and presume upon the Lord. We don't say, Lord, if you were really with me, you would not have let me lose that job. If you were really good, you would not have brought me into this financial difficulty. We don't say those things and we don't see them in Martha and Mary. We see a grief rather that recognizes the reality of who Jesus is, that if he was here, this would have been totally different. We do not see a self-centeredness that demands Jesus conform to their desires. Fourthly, their grief leaves nothing hidden and lays everything at the feet of the Savior. Notice particularly in Mary's response. Mary does not cling in any way to her dignity. She is racing to Jesus. She's weeping. There's no sense of trying to protect her image. She throws herself at the feet of Jesus and cries out, Lord, if you had been here. There's nothing hidden within her. Everything is laid bare. Now, Christian maturity does not mean that you never have any grief or you never have any questions to bring. Often it's actually a sign of immaturity that you never bring things to the Lord because it's probably an indication of self-righteousness where you don't think you need to pour out your heart to God. Whereas Christian maturity recognizes how incredibly frail we are and how desperate we are for the sustaining hand of the Lord. So we pour out our hearts to him because he alone is our refuge. We're not concerned with our own image. We are concerned with laying everything bare in utter transparency before the Lord. And this honors him as the God to whom nothing is hidden anyway. This is what honors the Lord. It leaves nothing hidden. And fifthly and finally, their grief leads them back to trusting in the Lord. Someone once said, uh, righteous lament, lament being uh, expressing grief. Righteous lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. A prayer of pain that leads to trust. Its goal is to come to a place of deeper trust. We see this particularly in Martha's response. Notice that after she says, Lord, if you were here, she comes back to this place of saying, but even now I know God is going to give you whatever you want. It leads back to a place of trust in the Lord. God glorifying lament and grief leaves everything bare before God and yet its purpose is to bring ourselves to a greater trust in the Lord as we rest in His complete control, especially when it seems like things are out of control in our life. We express our grief in order to come back to this place of trusting in the Lord and His goodness. Now, those are five aspects. And because I admit there are brief, um, there really what we have in the, the context of Mary and Martha is quite brief. So I want to show how each of these aspects of God-glorifying grief is displayed all throughout the Psalms. So I'm going to give these five aspects through the Psalms very quickly. Firstly, God-glorifying grief recognizes God as God. It attributes God things to God. We see this in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, verse 7, the psalmist says, Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, now this is the psalmist expressing his lament, saying, deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Notice the psalmist isn't trying to work out where the waves have come from. He's very clear to say, 
God, you have done this. I know you're sovereign. It's your waves that are crashing over me. Regardless of my circumstances, you're sovereign. You're good. You're over everything and your waves are crashing over me. Your breakers, your waterfalls, I'm drowning here and, and you're doing this. Now that glorifies God because it's attributing God things to God himself. It's not trying to work out maybe someone else is doing this. No, I know God is sovereign. This is your doing, Lord. Secondly, grief is directed toward Christ as the sole source of comfort and meaning. Psalm 62, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Look at that. There is no one else and nowhere else that I will ever go. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. It's like this picture of hand over mouth. I'm not moving until God comes and does what he needs to do in my heart. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. I'm not looking to self-help therapy. I'm not looking to binge and escape in TV series or something like that. God has to do his work in me. I'm not going anywhere else. It's almost like a God-glorifying stubbornness that is looking nowhere else for their source of satisfaction and contentment and meaning in the midst of this grief. Thirdly, God-glorifying grief is not self-centered. Psalm 85, the psalmist again expressing lament says, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Feels like they've been abandoned. He says, Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Notice that the grief is undergirded by this recognition of all things working out for God's sake rather than self's sake. So they're actually praying, Lord, will you revive us? Why? So that we may rejoice in you, so that you may be praised. It's really difficult to praise you, though we must praise you in the midst of the storm. Will you not revive us, bring us out of this so that you may get the glory? That's a, a God-centered prayer of grief rather than a self-centered prayer prayer. Fourthly, their grief leaves nothing hidden. The same transparency. Psalm 42 again, the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? There is no hint of trying to put on a brave face in that. The psalmist is utterly clear to say, I'm crying so much, my tears have been my food day and night. Why do I go mourning? There is no putting on a brave face. There is just utter transparency directed toward the Lord. And fifthly and finally, grief leads to a trust in the Lord. Psalm 77, the psalmist begins by saying, I cry out to the Lord. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now that's a bleak picture. It's a, a picture of what many people now would call depression. But the psalmist in the middle of the psalm then brings his anguish to remember the Lord's faithfulness. So in the middle of the psalm, the psalmist says, hang on, I know what I'll do. I'll remember the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. 
I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. I will remember the wonders of old. And then he just details all of the wonderful things that the Lord has done. And it's this beautiful way where the grief ends up leading him to a greater trust in the Lord as he remembers God's faithfulness in many other times in the past. And so his remembrance leads him back to a trust in God's faithfulness. Now, these are five aspects of probably many more that make our grief glorifying to the Lord. Our grief is glorifying to the Lord when it is wholly directed toward Him, when we attribute God things to God. We're not looking, again, to self-help therapy. We're not looking to anything else to get us out of this grief other than for the God of all comfort to comfort us in the midst of our afflictions, for the lifter of our head to then lift us out of this pit of despair, that we may praise Him again. Now, In our passage today, we have these two foundational things that undergird our grief. And the first is that we must know that our Savior truly understands what it is to grieve. Here is a beautiful reality of the Christian life. Our Savior truly understands what it is to grieve. So we're going to come back to Jesus' words on the resurrection. Let's look at verses 33 to 37. From verse 33, Jesus sees Mary and the other Jews weeping, and he is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, the idea of being deeply moved in spirit here is more to do with a, a sense of righteous anger which is why in your Bibles you might have a translation or a footnote that instead of deeply moved, it might say indignant, uh, because the literal meaning of that word is to be indignant, to have a, a sense of righteous anger. And this is important to understand, because Jesus, though he does display grief, for he weeps, we must understand that it is not the same grief of those who witness Lazarus dying, who do not believe that he will be resurrected. It is not the same grief of those who are hopeless, who think, here's a dead man, that's the end of his life, end of the story. Jesus clearly does not have that grief. He knows that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he is deeply moved and troubled as he sees the effects of sin upon those whom he loves, as well as seeing the hopelessness in many people that inevitably dishonors the God of hope. And this leads Jesus to a sense of righteous anger and grief over the effects of sin on those whom he loves. Jesus loves these people. He has made this clear in our passage from last week. He loves these people, so he wants them to see the glory of God. And so he is moved with tears as he sees the effects of sin upon the world. Now we see this in verse 35, what many people famously know as the shortest uh, shortest verse in the Bible, at least in our English translations, it's the shortest verse. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Let us meditate upon that for a moment. Jesus wept. The God of heaven and earth in the flesh is weeping. God, who was before all things, who created all things, he took on flesh with proper human tear ducts and he wept. He cried. The writer of Hebrews tells us that through many times, Jesus offered up loud shouts and cries with tears. 
See what kind of love our God has for us that he should actually enter into the devastation. I mean, he, he's outside of creation. He enters into creation, into this fallen world, and he is moved to tears. He weeps as he comes to redeem his people. Now see what confidence we can have. See what confidence we who grieve can have in drawing near to our Savior in times of grief, knowing full well that he knows what it is to grieve. He knows what it is to grieve. You know how when you're in grief and sometimes one of the worst things someone can say to you is, oh, I know what it's like. I understand. And many of us probably think you don't understand what it's like. You're not going through this. You can never say that to Jesus. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to grieve. He wept He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be afflicted. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. And our Savior can comfort us with the deepest of sympathies, the deepest of sympathies, because he has experienced the temptations and devastations of sin, yet without ever succumbing to sin. And this is why we are told to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need because we have a Savior who sympathizes with us. We bring our grief to God because He knows what it is to grieve. How incredible this is. Now, the other foundational truth that undergirds our grief is, of course, the hope of the resurrection. If we come back to verses 23 to 27, this is what undergirds the Christian hope. The fact that there is a resurrection. Now, Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonian church, he is clear to distinguish Christian grief from non-Christian grief. So he's writing to the Thessalonians and he wants to comfort them because they've seen many people die. And he wants to comfort them and he says, we want you, dear brothers. Rather, he says, we don't want you, dear brothers, to grieve as those who have no hope. So notice he doesn't say, we don't want you to grieve. Stop crying. He's just saying, we don't want you to grieve like other people who have no hope. And then he talks about the resurrection and meeting the Lord again. Paul wants the Thessalonians to have a concrete hope in the midst of their grief that is centered upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus here wants Martha and Mary and all those whom he loves to have this hope. So back to verse 23, Jesus says to Martha, Martha, your brother will rise again. Now Martha assumes that this is the final resurrection on the very last day. But Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice it's possible to have a belief in the resurrection on the last day and for Christ to still desire to give you a deeper hope in the resurrection. So Jesus is pressing this home to Martha in a much deeper way. And he says, Martha, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, the same question he gives to us today. Do you believe this? Do you have this hope of resurrection? Do you believe that your trust in me, that is in Jesus, assures you that even death is merely the entrance 
to my heavenly embrace. Do you believe that death itself cannot separate you from me? Will you believe that when you've been dealt the terminal diagnosis, when you are about to face the sword? Will you believe that not even death will separate you? Though you die, you are alive and you will live forever in the arms of Christ. And how we need to grasp this hope in this world which prizes this life as supremely valuable above everything else. So many people focused upon this world and our happiness as the goal of this life, and we need to push against that. Now, it's not as if this life is not to be enjoyed, but this life is a vapor. 70 or 80 years, if the Lord gives us, of hard toil, then in a flash, death, and then eternity, either with God or without God. Eternity, either in the warm embrace of Christ our Savior or in the torment of hell. We must not prize this life any higher than it needs to be. Jesus wants us to know there is resurrection hope and the assurance that Jesus gives is that he is not simply offering resurrection as though someone offers a pamphlet on a street. Jesus is the resurrection. See, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Every other religion offers some sort of pathway to salvation. Follow these rules and you'll get there. Whereas in Christ, God becomes the pathway. He is the pathway. He is the resurrection. He becomes salvation for us. See, it's, it's one thing to offer a beggar on the street some money, perhaps to give a few coins, and with enough money, you might even offer some sort of pathway out of poverty for that beggar. But offering some change, as most of us know, is really never enough. It is quite another thing to see a beggar on the street and to take that beggar into your home to skill him up in various trades, to teach him sustainable and wise living, to make him grow in discipline, and to set him on his way, having all of these resources at his disposal. Now, in that sense, you have not simply offered him some sort of pathway. It's almost as if you have become the pathway to sustainable living for that beggar. Now, Jesus is not offering a resurrection abstracted from him. He is the resurrection. And we who have trusted in Christ have experienced the foretaste of this resurrection. This is the beautiful thing. And this is part of the point that Jesus wants Martha to understand. Martha was thinking solely in terms of a future resurrection, whereas Jesus is saying, hey, the foretaste of this is now. I'm here. The foretaste of the resurrection is here in me. All those who trust in me will be spiritually resurrected, just like we will see next week with Lazarus being called out of the tomb, stripped of his filthy tomb robes. Likewise, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, it is as if Christ has called us out of the grave of our sinful lives. He has loosed us of our slavery to the flesh. He has taken off our filthy garments and dressed us in a robe of righteousness. And now we hope in the fullness 
of the resurrection. Though we have had a foretaste of it, we hope in the fullness of the resurrection where what is perishable becomes imperishable. What is prone to dishonor finally honors the Lord. What is mortal becomes immortal. And it is this hope, this wonderful hope of the resurrection that we must come back to again and again, that allows us to go through the greatest of grief and sorrow. It allows us to go through the deepest pit of despair, knowing full well that there is no pit so deep that God cannot bring us out of and will bring us out of in the resurrection. We have hope in this wonderful resurrection. Death will be but a moment. Life in Christ forever. What a glorious hope. Now, let me finish with another story of two other faithful brothers who died at the hands of uh, great persecution in the 16th century. Perhaps a more prominent uh, couple here, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. These were two faithful men who had the God-ordained opportunity to display this kind of hope that we've been talking about in the face of death. So Ridley and Latimer were both denounced as heretics by the Roman Catholic Church for holding views that we hold today. And they were brought before the council. They were given an opportunity to recant. They did not. They were then sentenced to be burned at the stake the next morning. And that evening, Ridley was afforded the privilege of having a final meal with his family and friends before his death, and when he began to uh, eat, someone began to cry. And Ridley said, quiet yourself. Though my breakfast tomorrow will be somewhat sharp and painful, I'm sure my supper will be pleasant and sweet. What a beautiful saying. And as Ridley and Latimer took their place on the stakes, about to be burned, about to be engulfed in flames, Ridley said to Latimer, be of good cheer, brother, for God will either soften the fury of the flame or he will give us strength to endure it. What a glorious hope. Again, attributing God things to God, recognizing God as God. He's sovereign over this. He's in control. If he didn't want us to be burnt at the stake, we wouldn't. This is the lot we have been dealt so he will either soften the fury of the flame or he will give us all of the strength that we possibly need to go into glory with a bang. Now, as the flames were lit at their feet, Latimer said, be of good comfort, Brother Ridley. This is probably the most famous quote of the 16th century persecution. Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Then the flames engulf them. Now, John Fox, who lived at that time and who wrote about their persecution and many others, he recorded that at this time, at their death, hundreds of witnesses were in tears. They were weeping. They saw years and years of study, of knowledge, of dignity, of honor, all consumed in a moment by the flames. And I love these words that John Fox writes. He says, well, they are gone. That is, Latimer and Ridley are gone. And the rewards of this world they already have. But what a reward waits for them in heaven on the day of the Lord's glory, when he comes 
with his saints. What a reward waits for them. What a reward waits for us who by faith persevere, who have this hope and who long for that day of Christ's return. This is the kind of hope that comes to those who take Jesus at his word when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What hope we can have. What hope we have to walk through the deepest of grief, through the greatest of sorrow, knowing that not even death will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will separate us. And it is this hope of the resurrection that allows us to persevere and allows us to go through the greatest of grief in a God-glorifying way.